this is Alana, and this is Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast by Patient Worthy. Today we have an update. This will be the last episode of Wait, How Do You Spell That? that I will personally be recording, or if I record another one, I will probably be a guest on it. I'm, I'm leaving Patient Worthy after years of working here to pursue a different path and a different form of storytelling. But luckily, we have an exciting new person filling in my shoes, Colby. My name is uh, Colby, and I will be uh, stepping into the big, big shoes left behind by Alana. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast today. And uh, I'm really excited to be joining the Patient Worthy team. Yeah, thank you. We are, we're excited to have you with us. I'm excited to hand off my child this podcast to you, (laughs) (laughs) my young infant son. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up uh, working here. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, So I studied journalism in college and I've worked at various publications, including print media and broadcast news for a little over a decade now. so my story is kind of one of of media, but also uh, intertwined with healthcare. Uh, I used to be an EMT uh, right out of college. Um, mm-hmm. I was registered and volunteered at a local rescue squad for about four years, oh, wow. and that was what first really got me interested in healthcare. And even then, you know, sort of being part of the system, uh, especially on the emergent care side of it, I could really see that there were challenges in the system and. Um, also prior to coming to, uh, to the patient worthy team, I worked as a health educator for two years, um, on offering information to people on various disease states, uh, things like, uh, hepatitis C, uh, and also, uh, some immunocompromised diseases as well. It's exciting to have you as an addition to our team. I think especially because I think everyone here has different relationships with rare disease and how it's impacted our life and like what role we've played and what role someone we loved played. And um, I think it's cool that like, we've never had an EMT here before. (laughs) Um, Like people who are looking at it from different angles and different lenses and just by having a different type of experience, seeing things that, you know, I haven't seen or Rebecca hasn't seen because we haven't worked on that side of it before. It's, it's exciting to have, you know, a different perspective on board. Sure, and I'm happy to help provide that too. Um, I can already tell that everybody, uh, everybody here on the team is, is really passionate uh, about healthcare and about uh, patients and their experiences in healthcare, and, and especially when it comes to rare disease advocacy. Another couple things I do want to add. Um, one, we are not doctors here. I am a former medical illustrator. Colby is a former EMT. Um, we are having this conversation because we work at Patient Worthy and we interact with um, issues that affect people with rare diseases every day, but please do not take this as medical advice. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's something where, um, you know, on the first episode of Rebecca and I did of this, we talked about how rare diseases have played a role in our personal lives, but it's not something that we really talk about on air. Uh, like something you hear all the time is like in the U.S. this statistic is one out of 10 people have rare disease and then when you sort of uh, extrapolate out like all of the people that person affects um, as well it's sort of like everybody actually has had rare disease play a role maybe not every single person but 
it becomes less surprising that so many members of our team have been impacted by it and are passionate about it because of that. Yes, I, I think that's true. I think if, um, even if someone who thought that they, you know, do not have a direct fluent influence of somebody who has a rare disease in their life, if they really sat down and thought about it, the connection might not be as limited as they first thought. Yeah. Anyway, today, actually, that kind of links into what we're talking about today a little bit, which is uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, um, or EDS, uh, which is a connective tissue disorder. And the reason I'm thinking that that um, segues to it a little bit is that um, EDS is, it's like, it is a rare disease, like it's on the rare disease lists, like the NIH probably classifies it as a rare disease. But people from the EDS community will often sort of specify it's probably not actually rare. It's severely underdiagnosed and like neglected and there aren't adequate treatment options. And just one of the things is that it's, it's really hard to get a diagnosis for. It might be uh, a little more realistic to describe it as being a rarely diagnosed disease yes, versus yes. a rare disease just yes. because of the amount of time it takes. Yeah, exactly. It's because like the diagnosis, it's like some people, for some people it takes years, for some people they never get the diagnosis. So when we're saying this many people have EDS, a lot of time the numbers that we're citing are more like this is the number of people who have received an EDS diagnosis. But then there's all these other people out there who are just living life with the same mutations and like with the same symptoms but aren't getting, um, you know, the slip of paper or like the note on their medical file that says it so that the number that we're seeing when we see how many people are diagnosed is thought to be much lower than the number of people who really are affected by it. Well, do you want to give a little background for people who might not be familiar with Ehlers-Dahlos syndrome? Yeah, um, it's actually a group of rare disorders. Um, it's a connective tissue disorder and there's a bunch of different types. Um, and I think one of the ones that people are most likely to have come across that's I believe is the most common one, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is the type that uh, is most associated with really flexible joints. It is thought to be a genetic mutation that affects collagen production you know, that can cause symptoms throughout the body, like a connective tissue, like all of your organ systems have connective tissue. So um, it can cause issues in your joints, it can cause issues in your skin. Um, one famous symptom is that like your skin can be really, really stretchy, um, but it can also cause issues um, in your heart, uh, like especially sort of like if the vessels are stretching, that can be pretty dangerous. Um, it can cause digestive problems. It's like, it's really a full body, disorder, but two symptoms I think people are most familiar with are stretchy skin and hypermobile joints. Um, although those really are an incomplete picture of what it is. Um, it's also uh, the hypermobile joints, uh, you know, are prone to dislocating um, and injury in general and pain problems. Uh, some people are really, really affected by it. Um, I've known people who have had to leave school, like some people need mobility aids, some people don't. Um, some people can go hiking in the mountains, some people aren't able to, or once were able to, and then their symptoms got worse, or they were on a competitive gymnastics team and then they fell and they had an injury that no doctor was able to understand. 
there are so many different subtypes and even within the subtypes, there is a huge range of how those symptoms actually appear. Um, and we'll most specifically be talking about hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome today, uh, which is the one that's most associated with uh, loose joints. Another disorder to know about is hypermobility spectrum disorder. Um, it has a lot of overlap with EDS, but it has slightly different diagnostic criteria and is often kind of the label that's used to explain uh, why someone has very mobile joints but doesn't meet all of the criteria needed for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So with such a, a range of symptoms that someone with EDS might present with, and especially uh, a range in the severity of those symptoms as well, uh, then it's really no surprise then that it can be a struggle for some people to actually receive a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. I think also there's a lot more awareness now about it than there used to be. For a long time, there was a lot of doctors that didn't understand it very well or only understood it to a limited capacity. That also contributed to the underdiagnosis, which is why there's a lot of awareness efforts now. You know, I at some point I was at uh, the Ehlers-Danlos Society conference in Baltimore in, I want to say, 2018. Um, and one thing that uh, some of the specialists were talking about is knowing that you have a diagnosis early on can be really helpful because you know, if you're a kid and you have some of the symptoms and you know it runs in your family, then maybe that kid is not going to play contact sports. Like maybe they're not going to be like getting tackled in a football game, like because that would be a sport that could cause injuries that will be harder to recover from. Additionally, like maybe there will be different accommodations in school, like you'll be typing instead of writing or that you'll be using like special tools when you're writing to make sure that you're not putting too much stress on like your finger joints. So it is pretty helpful to know early on. So one challenge that also I think exists within the EDS community is that there's, there's hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or HEDS. And although Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a genetic condition, HEDS is one of the subtypes, um, maybe the only subtype that is not actually associated with a specific gene, which doesn't mean that it's not caused by a gene. It is thought to be caused by a gene. It just means that humans are full of lots of genes that do lots of things, and it takes a lot of research to figure out what gene is associated with what condition. And we also, we don't know for sure, if it's just, if when we're talking about the HEDS group, maybe there are multiple genes that cause that. Like maybe that's actually two subtypes or three subtypes. The gene for that specific subtype hasn't been located. And so for people with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, instead of uh, being able to just get like a genetic testing thing and have the gene checked yes or no, people are generally diagnosed uh, via clinical symptoms, which, you know, there's, there's various criteria, generalized joint hypermobility, um, sort of like what joints are hypermobile. There's like different manifestations that like, you know, you must have two or more of the following and like it lists a bunch of symptoms that are associated with it, like atrophic scarring, uh, dental crowding, a specific type of arm span to height, how often you've uh, has joint dislocations or widespread pain. Importantly, like positive family history with one or more first degree relatives meeting current diagnostic criteria for HEDS. It's, it's almost like a rubric. It's like you get points for different things um, and you have to check off this number of points in this box of criteria and this number of points in this thing. And then at the end, it's sort of like 
imagine kind of like adding up a rubric quiz and being like, yes, you are above 12, like you are in the EDS category versus no, you didn't check off a lot of enough of these boxes. So you're not. And another part of the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome criteria with hypermobility, um, the Baton score is often used and the Baton score is a specific type of uh, joint hypermobility test that uh, measures things like, uh, can you touch your thumb to your wrist? Sort of things like that, that are sort of specific joint movements that some people can do and some people can't. You go through those motions and you get a number based off of how many you're able to do. Um, maybe you get a point for each hand for uh, the thumb to wrist one. So since it sounds like uh, there, there's not one prescriptive genetic test that can identify this, and mm -hmm. also the fact that it can be a progressive disease, people might experience different symptoms at different parts of their life, yeah. and also something that you'd have to work with a doctor to help identify various aspects of symptoms, then it sounds like all of this kind of goes into making this a very long diagnosis process in some yeah. cases. <laughs> yeah, generally, you know, it, it generally takes years. A lot of people aren't believed by their doctors, um, especially if their doctor learned in medical school that Ehlers-Danlos syndrome was really rare. There's a common phrase in medical school that is often brought up in rare disease communities, uh, but medical students are taught if you hear hoofbeats think horses, not zebras. Like it's more likely that you'll hear a horse. But we do live in a world where zebras also exist. And so the zebra symbol is often used by the Ehlers-Danlos community as well as sort of the rare disease community at large to symbolize sort of like, yes, like there are people who exist who are, have the conditions that you learned were rare in medical school. And if someone went like in their education was told like almost no one has it, then they might hear like, oh, like they have a lot of joint pain and attribute it to something other than Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. When I was at the Ehlers-Danlos Society conference, you know, I, I went to a lot of, attended a lot of lectures and panels with specialists. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that, you know, the specialists who are doing great work and like really on top of the field sort of seems to be saying the diagnostic criteria we have for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome isn't perfect. It's like they have the research and information that they have available to them and this was the best list of questions they could come up with, but it doesn't mean that it's the perfect list or it's the static list or it's the forever list. Um, it's sort of using the materials that they have available to them the best way they could figure it out, but it will sort of leave some people out. And um, it'll also swoop some people in um, because it's a genetic disorder. Whether or not you have a family member who presents with clinical symptoms will hold a lot of weight in your diagnosis. Um, you know, that's a category on the rubric and you will get points, um, you know, points uh, sounds like a reward system, uh, which to some extent maybe it is if the reward is getting treatment, getting, you know, accommodations at work or at school, um, like how your insurance treats you. Like it, hypermobility syndrome doesn't have the same requirements, but it does have a lot of overlapping requirements. And at some point when they changed the diagnostic system, uh, people got moved from having an HEDS diagnosis to having a joint hypermobility syndrome diagnosis. Um, and there's a misconception that Joint hypermobility syndrome 
is inherently a milder condition, which can be true for some people, but it is a misconception that it is always true, that like this is the mild one, this is the serious one, because so much of you know the HEDS diagnosis depends on some factors that leave some people out or depends on family members. So for example, someone could qualify with an HEDS diagnosis because they had a sister who had um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and was clinically diagnosed. And through that means meet the criteria while still exhibiting less, fewer of the symptoms that actually impact their life. Um, whereas someone could have a lot of the symptoms that are like life affecting, sort of like maybe have greater more mobility problems, greater pain, um, more complications, but not have uh, the family history that would warrant a diagnosis. Or even something that I've thought about a lot is that person, um, like, you know, if someone had a brother or a sister who was diagnosed and that was what upped the points enough to receive an HEDS diagnosis, you could have the exact same molecular person in the exact same molecular body, but they're an only child. And in one world, they would have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And in the other world, they wouldn't. Just like particle for, for particle, same human being, whether or not they have this disease would depend on a person who is external to their body, which has always seemed so crazy to me. Like it makes sense that family history is a factor that's considered, but I do think it's demonstrative of sort of this greater thing of like the diagnostic criteria doesn't account for all situations. And this will be a familiar question for people who are living with a rare disease, but what sort of challenges are faced by people who don't fit into the typical model of diagnosis for EDS? I think there's a range of challenges. I think, you know, sometimes there's challenges in terms of sort of when people have a disorder that's diagnosed, like what doctors can they go to? Um, like what accommodations can they expect uh, in school? But there's also just a psychological challenge of not having your pain validated. Like of being told like, oh, you have the less serious one even when your life is really affected by it. Um, kind of not having the explanation to give your friends or family or even yourself to knowing that you're having these experiences but aren't maybe taken as seriously as someone who can get the formal diagnosis. But um, there are other barriers to diagnosis that, um, you know, have to do with what doctor someone has access to or just whether that doctor is really familiar with EDS. Some people will get... Um, a diagnosis from one doctor and then they'll get a conflicting opinion from another doctor and so they'll kind of float in this interstitial diagnostic space for years. Another obstacle is the Dayton scale which um, you know has a lot of great uses. It does measure a lot of ways that people can present hypermobility but it also misses a lot of ways. Um, like for example, there's all these different ways that you can measure if your fingers are hypermobile. Like, can you move them back greater than 90 degrees? But your toes are not on the Bayton scale. Like they just, they're, they're not a part of the criteria. So if you present in your toes rather than presenting in your fingers, you won't get that point towards a diagnosis. Um, if you uh, have hypermobility in your thoracic spine, that won't be a point towards your diagnosis. So it's sort of, it's a system that favors people who have hypermobility in some joints rather than hypermobility in others, you know, which can be harmful if like, you know, if you need to get treatment for the disorder or you need to explain something to your doctor. 
or you you need to take uh, preemptive measures. Uh, telling someone that they have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome might make them more cautious before participating in an event that is more dangerous if you have hypermobile joints. So yeah, so it's actually, it's very incomplete. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's good in there, but then there's also a lot of stuff that leaves people out as well. You know, beyond just the criteria, like, like I mentioned, like the which doctors you're seeing, which doctors you can afford, where you live, that will impact whether or not you will get a formal diagnosis. Um, also, if you are unable to work because you have severe symptoms from EDS, you can be eligible for disability benefits, um, including social security, disability insurance, and su supplemental security income. And when it sort of comes to someone who might not be able to work because of their condition or who might have to take off school because of their condition, it can be helpful just to be given a diagnosis. Especially given that uh, EDS is a disease that is not totally well understood by the medical community. You know, people who have actually trained, um, you know, or are supposed to be trained to recognize uh, the symptoms of this disease. So it's no wonder that yeah. that can also be confusing for patients. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, like there are specialists who know a lot, but maybe the general, your GP, like your general practitioner, or, you know, pediatrician or someone might have some misinformation on it. A general doctor has a lot of things to know about, but it can be hard if you have, you know, this is the whole rare disease thing. It's just hard when your general doctors are misinformed about your disease and might tell you not to worry about it or not to seek a second opinion um, or might not give you the referral that your insurance requires for you to go see a specialist um, because when they checked you, your fingers weren't hypermobile. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's an appeal that people often make to to expertise, uh, not that, you know, you shouldn't listen to your doctor or take into account what they're saying to you based off of their experience and their training, but just that that's not entirely the whole picture. Doctors yeah. are people too. Uh, yeah. They can make mistakes. Uh, they may not be aware. Uh, as you said, someone might be dealing with a GP who this is not necessarily their area of expertise to begin with. Yeah. And like, you know, you could say, like, I, I can imagine someone saying like, oh, if your GP isn't taking it seriously, go to someone else. And some people will, but I could definitely see myself in that situation if my GP said, like, don't worry about it, just being like, okay, I gotta just not worry about it. You know, like taking like taking it to heart and believing the people who maybe had made me feel like pain was wasn't legitimate. Um, like, I think that sort of varies a lot depending on a person and their experiences with doctors. And like that, even if there are other doctors out there, it, it's so easy to believe that you are the one who's wrong. That's something that uh, I think plays into uh, a topic that we, we care a lot about here, uh, yeah. which is that um, patients are people. Uh, patients yeah. have their experiences and they need to be shared. They need to be heard. Uh, they're more than just a data point. Yeah. They're more than just a, a, a vector for symptoms. They, they yeah. are people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That like not all patients are going to react um, the same way to getting a dismissive response from a doctor or something. Um, something else that, uh, that one of the doctors at the uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Conference talked about was that another part of... Um, something that she saw that was pretty common in EDS patients 
uh, was PTSD and like medical PTSD because they'd spent so much time like going to hospitals and going through tests and not being taken seriously and being put in these sort of traumatic situations and um, coming out with a big distrust of the medical system. I think that's a thing that I've heard expressed across a, a lot of rare disease yeah. patients is it can be so exhausting and take up so much bandwidth, um, essentially just trying to figure out what what's going on, yeah, <laughs> what's yeah. going on with yourself. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, getting somebody to believe you so that you can get the things you need to help you through yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And sort of just like trying to navigate that with your regular life, sort of being like, okay, so should I like, is it unsafe for me to go on this trip? Should I stop hiking? Should I be quitting the job? Like, is it dangerous for me to continue? Is it not dangerous? Sort of trying to navigate the medical system and then also trying to navigate your own life and how it affects that. Um, for some EBS patients, there are um, heart problems that can come around with it and sort of being like, should you be going into a cardiologist every year to monitor that? Like, what activities are dangerous? And there's so much trauma that goes that can come along with just having a rare disease in general, and especially when you're not being believed. Factors that, that many people don't even really have to think about in their lives. Yeah. Another thing that I want to add before we go for people who are listening is um, if you're enjoying this episode and you want to hear more conversations like this, uh, we'd really appreciate if you rated us and reviewed and subscribed to our podcast. Um, it's kind of embarrassing to ask this, but it really does help us continue to do what we're doing right now. All right. I think about, that's about all I have today. Um, I'm trying to think of how to sum this up the best way. Like, I Sadly, I think my last podcast with Patient Worthy is coming to an end, um, or at least my last podcast where I am on the hosting end. Um, and I guess we're both hosting and we're co-hosts right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the call and for uh, talking with me and for taking over my sweet young podcast. <laughs> Our sweet young podcast. I can't call it mine. Please don't work <laughs> sweet young podcast. Thank you. I know it is in good hands and I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast today and thank you for the introduction as well. And I think I speak for everyone and I say that we would love to have you on as a guest oh. in the future, <laughs> if that's something that, you know, that we can do. Um, and I hope that I can take your baby and sort of shepherd it to the next phases of its life. Uh, and yeah. we all really appreciate that the work that you've put in at Patient Worthy over the years. And I know that we're all excited to see where life takes you next. And I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors. Yeah, thank you so much.